0: Welcome back, everybody, to episode 14 of the Independent Intel Podcast. I'm your host, Kim bomani and here today we got a special guest. Isaiah Kitt he has his own podcast that he's been creating. We've been collabing in the DMs for a while now, trying to get this, uh, you know, situation created, and it's finally here, 14 episodes in. But before we go in-depth into what he's about and what we're going to talk about today, I have a promo for this episode, and it's about a podcast that also has followed us as well, that I've liked Two for One Special. It's a podcast where two brothers go outside the box when it, comes to, when it comes down to talking about video games and anime. Not only will they have you thinking, but you can also enjoy some funny moments and some slow ones. Be sure to check them out in their weekly episodes on Anchor, and you can also find them on Apple Podcasts. Now, back for us, I got Isaiah Kidd, first-time guest on the set, and he's an individual who has his own content. I've been following him. Early on when I created the Independent Intel Podcast, he was one of the first supporters that kind of, you know, supported me when I was creating this content, and he's always asked to get on the show when I start releasing guests, and he's here today, so Isaiah, talk about yourself and your product.
1: Yes, uh, thank you for having me on. Uh, I can remember the time, just to dwell on, you know, what you're talking about, I remember the time when you told me, you reached out to me, you like, hey, I'm starting the Independent Intel Podcast, and I was like that's a, that's first that was a that was a great name uh i didn't i i didn't i couldn't come up with a name like that but as 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 you said already i have my own podcast called isaiah kid podcast it's a sports podcast um i've been doing i've been podcasting for almost two years now so i guess i'm a bit experienced um in some areas um And I'm just excited to be on. I've been, you know, I've been trying to, you know, you know, we've been trying to collab and do certain things. Um, But I'm glad to be on your platform. Finally, you've done it. I I must say you've done a good job and your content has been really good. So since I've been following you, so continue.
0: I appreciate that. Um, Your content has been fabulous as well. And, you know, I've built this following up for like four months and on IG we're nearing 300 followers and it's something I really never expected, but I've been able to get a lot of people, a lot of guests on here before you guys that have big time IG following pages and having them talk about various items is something that made them take my product seriously and helped me kind of gain the confidence to take my product even more seriously. So here we are and we're going to dive right into it when it comes to the topics. First one I want to touch base on is the Denver Nuggets and their situation since the Jamal Murray injury. He had the tragic ACL tear against the Golden State Warriors last week. And it seemed like an ultimate death sentence when it came to the Nuggets' playoff chances. But since he's been out, they've had two games against Miami and Houston. Now, we know what Houston is about ever since they lost James Harden. They've been on the taking side of NBA basketball. But they've had an impressive win against Miami, 123-106. Michael Porter Jr., who arguably becomes their primary perimeter scorer now scored 25 points on an efficient 10 of 14 shooting, shot 50% from three. Jokic had his triple-double type outing. Aaron Gordon pitched in the new acquisition. He got the deadline, 16 points, nine rebounds, three assists. And then Jermichael Green and P.J. Dozier gave them solid contribution off the bench. Green had 17 on four threes. Dozier gave him 15. And then against Houston, Jokic went into his MVP bag, 29 points, 16 boards, seven assists. And then Michael Porter Jr. again, eclipsed over 20-plus points a game, with 21.7 to 13 shooting. Millsap pitched in with 11, Dozier had 11, and Green had 13. So I said all of that basically to sum it up as the Nuggets don't have Murray anymore, and what do you feel like it takes for this basketball team to, when it's time for the playoffs, be a legitimate contender in the West without their all-star point guard?
1: It's so tough um, because, ah, man, I hate these types of injuries, and – I don't know what it is, but so many stars throughout the NBA just in general have gotten hurt. And I think you can I think some of that could be attested to the condensed schedule within the 72 game regular season. But as far as the Nuggets and playoff, them being a playoff contender, I I must say before the after the trade happened, they added uh, Aaron Gordon. Uh, who's a Skywalker. He's a great great guy on defense, two-way player, can really shoot the three. I thought that gave them another element that they missed early on in the season. Um, and a guy like Jerrion Grant was there last year. He kind of played that similar role. I think Aaron Gordon, I like Jerrion Grant, but I think Aaron Gordon is a little bit better. Um, and then he added JaVale McGee. So I found the Nuggets before the injury to be a team that is destined to, to make some, to make some noise uh, quite frankly. And Jamal Mary, I don't, I, as much as I like Michael Porter Jr. In his offensive repertoire, his game, uh, many compare him to Kevin Durant, you know, due to the size and the ball handle ability and the jump shooting ability that he has it, in order for them, in order for the Nuggets to make a Geek run Michael Porter Jr. would have to he would have to ascend like he would have to do some quick developing and ascend and I, you know Jokic is arguably the MVP so we know what Jokic is going to do but I just can't I don't see this team maybe depending on the first round matchup who that is maybe they can win a round but I really saw this team possibly get into the conference finals and you know, making it difficult to whoever they're playing to get to the NBA, get to the NBA Finals. Because uh, I, when I look at Jamal Murray, you mentioned all-star guard, right? And he's, he's never made an all-star team, but he's an all-star caliber guard. I think the one fascinating thing about Jamal Murray is, especially, and we saw it in the bubble last year throughout the postseason, he takes his game not only to an all-star caliber level, but he takes his game to a MVP caliber level. So like there were like there were so many questions as like Jamal Murray might be the, the best player on the Nuggets. Like people were people were having that discussion, this that discussion. And he's not the best player on the Nuggets, but it just shows you like how his game rolls to the occasion last year in the postseason. And I think missing a guy like that, you really can't replace that. So I, I I that's why I feel so bad it was just a, such a devastating injury for the Nuggets and Murray so may depending on the matchup maybe a first round maybe a first round win but if the Lakers stay at like five and the Nuggets had to play the Lakers four and five that four and five matchup I I got the Lakers I mean <laughs> so yeah
0: yeah and right now as it stands that is who they would play they would play the lakers and i don't think that's enough you know in the nba this day and age and it is a great thing to see the seniors kind of make a a a resurface as premier players in the game but this game still for the lack of a better term, is dominated on perimeter play whether that's your backcourt or your wings and i had a extreme i was i always said jamal murray was probably the most inconsistent point guard in the game because he would have moments where, as you saw in the postseason last year, where he'd explode. He'd go on a run where he scored 40 points against elite competition that's, you know, guarding him. And in the next game, he'll have five or six or seven. And so, but recognizing that the way that their team is situated, they rely heavily on the playmaking ability of Jokic and the ball handling creativity ability of Murray. And since that's eliminated from the team in the backcourt, you're going to have to find a way to somewhat make up for that. And I don't think you ever will from the ball handling perspective in terms of creating your own offense. But you can try to eclipse it somewhat with scoring. I think they'll probably be more of a front court-oriented scoring team as I as we were able to see in these last two games that they played. Yokozhi is obviously going to be their point center. They're going to rely heavily on Michael Porter Jr. to be that second scoring option. And then Aaron Gordon, who they picked up, He's going to have to step up and kind of be a consistent third wheel. I don't know if he's got that in his repertoire this early in his career. The thing about Porter Jr. is, well, I don't think he's Kevin Durant. I think what he can be is a more skilled Chris Middleton. And the way that the Denver Nuggets play Porter, they kind of play Porter like the Bucs play Middleton. Have him coming off the screens. Uh, a lot of action where he's able to catch the ball in rhythm, elevate for jump shots. That's where he will probably be his most efficient as a scorer. The big issue with Porter is defense doesn't really like to defend on that end consistently, doesn't like to bang inside and crash the boards and get rebounds. And so if he's not going to be that productive element, it's going to be hard to kind of keep him on the floor in the playoffs, which is why him and Mike Malone have this love-hate relationship in terms of his minutes being subtracted or increased. They're going to be increased for sure now because he has to be on the floor, but we'll see where that goes. Um, For Denver, you know, I was really high on Denver two years ago when – You know, they were on the scene, they beat the Spurs in the first round, lost the Blazers. But since then, I've always felt like they've underachieved with their healthy core. And now that their healthy core has kind of been subtracted because of Murray's injury, and teams like the Suns, the Jazz have gotten better. And it looks like the Clippers finally got their psyche right and they're competitive. It's just going to be really hard for, for me to see them coming out of the first round. I thought originally they'd probably draw the Blazers, who I think is probably the sixth seed. The Lakers is even worse. I don't know if they could beat any of the top six teams in the West with their current roster that it is right now.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree with you. Um, Porter, Michael Porter Jr., you mentioned his minutes and him, you know, his lack of defensive intensity. That's going to have to improve. Um, And he's like he's still such a young guy. So he had time, but he has all of the measurables to be a pretty solid defender. Like he's six tenths, long, athletic, like he could, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the, with the defensive side of the basketball, it's a lot of just, it's just pure effort. Sometimes, sometimes if you just give effort, you don't have to be the greatest like skilled defender, but you're not going to just be um, a, 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 just a guy that everybody picks on. You know, I see that a lot with you know, guys like Kimball Walker, but back to the Nuggets. Yeah. The, they're, they're probably going to stay at four. Um, the Lakers probably maintain the fifth spot. Uh, I, I just don't, I mean, if the Lakers are fully healthy, they're not beating the Lakers. I'm, gonna just, I'm not going to just tiptoe around. No, they're not beating the Lakers if the Lakers are fully healthy. Um, so I, I, I think guys like Will Barton, who, who kind of plays some of that, floor general point forward type of role sometimes he's going to obviously have to make some huge contributions I know they just signed uh Austin Rivers Uh, I know they have Monte Morris so it's a team with good depth um I just don't (laughs) I I just can't see them imagining them winning a series against like the Lakers or the, the Suns you mentioned without their second guy Jamal Murray
0: and in the Western Conference, like we said, you acknowledge the Lakers is so tough. I think their fan base and their personnel is probably going to go back and regret the start that they had early in the season. For a 30-game stretch, the first 30, in fact, it just felt like they were underachieving and they were floundering. I started to really question Mike Malone's job security moving forward because, you know, they underachieved a little bit. I felt like, what well, did they didn't underachieve last year? They they were able to um, look up and have fortunate things go their way. Murray explodes in the first round. Clippers self-destruct in the second. But everybody expected these guys to take the next step. And before Murray got hurt, for a while, even it was like Jokic. And that was it. Everybody else was being consistent. Then lately, they got on a nice little run, and then Murray has a catastrophic injury. So We're going to really see how much Michael Porter Jr.'s ceiling truly is, like how high it is, because his role is going to get expanded. They're going to expect him to do a lot of things in the offensive end. And we're also going to see how legit their defense is. I've heard a lot of people that are high on the Nuggets keep talking about defense, 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 like they're one of the top 10 defensive teams in the league. And you're right. A lot about defense is just effort, intensity and awareness. But. When you get in a playoff series and guys kind of know your P's and Q's, know the weak links and what they're getting attacked in their strength arsenal, your defensive fortitude will truly be tested. So it's going to be really interesting to see how Denver is able to kind of maneuver their way out and figure that situation. So up next, the Minnesota Timberwolves, their team that decided to put them on this uh, topic because they intrigued me a lot. They're bad. Of course, they're 15 and 42, I might add. But recently, they've went three and four in their last seven since D'Angelo Russell's come back from injury. And their coaching staff and their organization have made it clear they want to see how the team looks when D'Lo is in the starting lineup because he's the guy that they mortgage a lot of their picks and Andrew Wiggins for to kind of be their floor general. And coming up in this draft in the NBA where the top four slots are full of franchise changing players, Everybody's expecting Cade Cunningham to go first. The issue is Cade Cunningham is a point guard. And so if Minnesota feels like d is probably not the requisite answer at the Florida general spot, it would make sense to take Cade and mortgage Russell for some assets. But they got a new coach because I never thought Ryan Saunders was the answer. Chris Finch comes in and it's pretty clear it's cultural. And it may start up top with the management and bad habits within the players and whatnot in terms of what they feel like they can get away with and whatnot. We know Carl Anthony Towns is special. We know um, Anthony Edwards has immense potential. And we know D'Lo, when he's healthy, is solid. But for the Timberwolves, where can they go from here? And is just getting the number one pick an answer? Considering now, they get the number one pick and get another guard. There's a logjam at an already stacked you know backcourt that they have. They already have a surplus of guards. Where should Minnesota go from here? And wherever they go, is it going to be enough to kind of bring this franchise up from purgatory and back into contention.
1: <laughs> well, you mentioned Minnesota. I mean, and I've really thought about. I've really thought about when you sent the topics, and I and you sent Minnesota. I was like, wow, Minnesota. I'm trying to. I'm trying to just think. They have been in the dumps for such a long time, um, and they and they had the one exception where. They traded for Jimmy Butler. They got to the playoffs, but they lost in the first round. The Timberwolves are such a weird team. Uh, and, 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 let's, and let's just add this: D'Angelo De- Russell and Karl Anthony Towns—they haven't played a lot of games together. Like that's the miss. Like that's the thing that's that like people forget or don't know. They had. I don't know the exact total. I wish I did. But they have not played a lot of games together, so we don't really know what this duo could really do. Like, what's their ceiling? But if they had, if they were to end up with the number one pick, because they are, they are at the bottom of the Western Conference, at the bottom of the league, and so forth. I don't know what they would do, honestly, because you, you, you they have been drafting guard after guard after guard. They obviously they had Anthony Edwards they drafted last year. Um, he turns out that he, he looks like a pretty solid player, got off to an inefficient start, but he's finding his way throughout these since the all-star break, basically. He's been finding his way and playing his game. I, I honestly don't know. Um I, I would assume that they would either use that draft pick um as trade bait and mortgage it and get more assets surrounding um this this. Core that they have with D'Angelo Russell, Andy Edwards, and Carl and Cat, um, or they dry, or if they really like Cade Cunningham, they mortgage D'Angelo Russell, like you said. So, I, 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 and I don't know, but I have uh, I had a source tell me a couple weeks, uh, well, a couple like right before the All Star break, I had a source tell me that there was going to be a young star um, that's going to one out of their current situation. Now, I don't know who it is. Um, I don't know who it is. But if I was to assume, I don't know if that's called Anthony Towns. It may be Carl Anthony Towns that may want out of this particular situation with the Minnesota Timberwolves. And if that's the case, obviously, Towns is a talented big, where you, young too, where you can get a lot for, you can get a lot for him um, and on top of the, whatever pick you get, let's just say, let's just play the game, the number one pick, right? So I think that's a start. That's a start. And in the Western conference, you need to have guys. You need to be, you need, you need to have depth. Um, obviously you need to have young talent, but you need, you need guys in the Western conference because the Western conference, it's just so deep. It's so deep and full of teams. And a lot of these teams are not going away. So I think that would be a start just First, let's figure out if they really like Kay Cunningham, or, or they really like D'Angelo Russell. D'Angelo Russell got to play some games with Cat, and let's see what happens. And let's see what Cat. Let's see what Cat wants. Let's see what his interests are.
0: That's a big thing. I think the biggest thing Minnesota has going for them is the way the organization rallied behind him during a time where he was at his lowest, lost his mom due to COVID went through the wrist injury and they went all out in terms of showcasing the cat. Listen, we not may not be the greatest franchise in terms of putting the records of talent around you to be successful, but we're here for you. And we're going to make sure you get back to the floor at appropriate time that you feel like it's comfortable and necessary for you to be successful. That helps because you don't want to be an organization that can't create the records of talent on the floor that translates to wins and be jerks. Um, They had that situation with Kevin Garnett when he was there. Where, obviously, for an extended period of time, they made the playoffs, but once things started to unravel and they weren't making the playoffs on regularity, Glenn Taylor had issues with KG, and that kind of was the beginning of the end of their relationship with him on the Wolves. I think another thing for Timberwolves are that, you know, they actually considered last offseason taking James Wiseman, but James Wiseman said he didn't want to play alongside Carl Lee Towns because he felt like we kind of played the same position. I'm actually like Evan Mobley from USC a lot. And I feel like for Minnesota, it may be a blessing for them not to get the number one pick and maybe for them to get the second. And then you get a five guy, a center, and allow Carr to kind of move to the four spot because he kind of plays like Anthony Davis, who also prefers the four, stretches the floor, puts the ball on the floor. He's got underrated ability off the dribble. And now you kind of have this twin tower effect keep your backcourt somewhat intact with D'Lo and Anthony Edwards. And then now your sole focus becomes finding, you don't have to find an all-star wing, but a complementary wing, maybe a free agency or through a trade, because you have a ton of young assets on the roster that they can maybe mortgage to get a likes of a Harrison Barnes, who I think is a free agent or may still be on the contract or something like that. So I think maybe they should go that way. The twin tower approach to beef up your front court than to, add another guard in a loaded backcourt and probably trade away D'Lo for our undervalued exchange
1: that, you make a good point um and i'm thinking about it d'andrew russell not the greatest defender uh anthony Edwards not really the greatest defender he's young and Confrey towns interior wise not really great not really the greatest defender and I like Evan Mobley as well. I think e- Evan Mobley reminds me of a more athletic uh, Chris Bosh. Uh, he has a nice shooting touch. He has great, you know, good ball handling skills and so forth, and he's seven foot tall. And he al- he's also an anchor in the middle. Something that Carl Anthony Towns, just, he's just not. He's just, he just not. Um, so I-, I-, I like that approach. Um, I think that I think that makes a lot of sense with you know adding two bigs, two legitimate skilled bigs, with your guard play, and they have you know you, when you think about it, Minnesota has Malik Beasley. He's a good, a good, a nice asset where you either keep him and he comes off your bench and he's just a automatic like instant offense type of guy, or you use him as trade bait and you leverage him. Um, I I just think there's so many ways Minnesota can go. I always say this about the NBA and and, in certain teams within NBA. There's one, I I don't mind. In the NBA, I even want to be really, really good where like I'm legitimately competing for a title or I'm bad because that middle area, that middle place, that middle ground where you're a borderline playoff team, and you make it, and you know you have no no chance on God's green earth to win a round, and you just get bounced in the first round, that is the worst spot to be in the NBA. I'm convinced. I've seen it for years. That's the worst spot to be in in the NBA. So at least for the Minnesota Timberwolves, yes, they suck, but they have assets on top of assets, and they have options where they can exploit different trade options, and as you said, to tidy up that backcourt um, or that that the backcourt situation in their wings. You know, D'Angelo Russell's is not a great defender. Um, you know, Anthony Edwards is not really like the best defender. I would say for that wing position, you go out and get a three and D guy. You get a th- you get a quintessential three and D guy to to really to try to balance out. Offense, you know the the offense with the defense. Um, you, you know you got defense, you got defensive, you got defensive deficiencies. So I, I, I like that for Minnesota. I think your I think your idea, your method, your model, it makes sense. It makes sense. Um, I know some people would probably be hesitant to draft a big with another big, but as you mentioned, Cat, he can play inside out or outside in rather. Um, where he can stretch the floor and he can do a variety of things so yeah I mean Minnesota I I, yes they're bad but they're not in the worst predicament to be in in the NBA in my opinion my opinion the worst predicament the worst situation to be in as a GM or as a team is where you're in that middle ground and you have no chance to win a playoff series and you keep making the playoffs
0: I respect your perspective. And I do agree that Minnesota, although their record is bad, they have immense talent. Like, I'm pretty sure if you make a list of the top under 25 NBA players in all of basketball, like top 20, Minnesota would probably have three of their players in that list. So they're in a good position with young talent. I think they are starting to reach a stage where this upcoming draft coming up, this might be the last time they probably need to be in the lottery before people will start to question, okay. They got all this young talent. Is it time for them to just blow it open and bring a new culture in there? Because you don't want an assimilation of young talent and you're kind of stagnant. That kind of was a position Phoenix was in until they got Chris Paul. I will say this, though, and I'm going to throw another little topic right before we pivot to the Deshaun Watson one. You did make a statement about teams being mediocre. Two teams that came to my mind right when you said that, like playoffs, but they're never really going anywhere. For the Magic before they finally decided to blow it up because their last two years they were in the first round and they met their makers against Milwaukee and Toronto, two of the top-tier teams in the East. And another one that nobody really wants to truly admit because they love their star player on the team, the Portland Trailblazers. Look, I have a misrespect for Damian Lillard. He's one of the – it's probably the Allen Iverson of our era. Hella underrated, makes great plays. The difference is he's in a stat conference where – you're He struggled, well, hasn't beat Curry in a playoff series. Westbrook used to give him fits until he finally got over that hurdle. He couldn't get past the likes of the Spurs when they were good, the Warriors when they were really good. And so he had to fight through that. And that one year they got to the conference finals, they benefited from a Thunder team that, although had Paul George and Carmelo, that was a Thunder team that was starting to unravel with that fraction of that team. And then they beat a different squad that was really young. And so now Portland's reaching a point where they're six seed. And if they don't make it out the first round, which is a high chance they might not because they would have to play the Clippers. There's talks about should Damian Lillard want out? Should they get rid of McCollum? Where do you think that Portland organization should go? Because personally, in my opinion, I feel like their trip to the conference finals saved them because the year prior, they got swept by the Pelicans. So if they would have lost in the first round the next year, but McCollum would have got traded, Terry Stotts would have been fired, and that the whole team would have been rebuilt. But that kept them alive for another year. Last year, they flamed out in the bubble, mainly because they were hurt throughout the season, so they exerted all their energy to get to the bubble. And now they're kind of back to being what they usually are. So when it's inevitable that the Blazers probably lose in the first round again, where should that franchise go moving forward in your eyes?
1: That's tough. Um, You mentioned Orlando out in the East. You've seen what Orlando did. Orlando made the playoffs the last couple of years, eighth um, seed borderline playoff team, and they get just completely washed by Toronto and, and, and Milwaukee. Washed. And they had to rebuild. They, re, they retooled. they like, the Vucevic thing, great player, having a career year, but we got, we got to move on. Um, Portland, I, I don't know what it is about Portland. I have so many people tell me be like, even before the year starts or throughout, even throughout the regular season, like I even hear Charles Barkley say it, Charles Barkley is adamant about the, about the Blazers. And, you know, he guarantees that <laughs> they're gonna, you know, actually do something. And they, they have a, they have a team with com- a, a great collection of talent. Um, and they're fast, they're fun to watch. The the Blazers are a fun watch. You got Dane pulling up from 30, CJ and his skill set, Carmelo, and you know, they added Norman Powell and Yoke. I mean um, Nurkic and, and, and Cantor. They got they got a lot of a lot of just great offensive players. They lack defense. Um, and as you mentioned, the the playoff series wins that they have had. Are kind of masked behind different situations. You mentioned OKC, you mentioned Denver, um, so that's what that's been kind of that's been saving him over the last couple of years and so forth. But if this Blazers team losing in the first round um, to the Clippers, which I think they probably will, if I had to if I had to pick, I would probably lean with the Clippers, um, especially with the way how they've been looking. A healthy Clippers squad would beat the Blazers. Um, I I think you gotta make some type of move, and I've come to the realization that this backcourt with D, with Dame and CJ, as explosive as it is offensively, they can't they can't win a championship with this with though that core, with these two guys being their best play, you can't win a championship. And I'm not saying it's not necessarily Dame or CJ's fault necessarily, but it's just how the NBA is built. Just think about the guys that's been winning championships over the last ten years: LeBron, Curry, Kawhi, Durant. Over the last, over the last, like five to ten years, look at the guys that's been orchestrating championship teams. They're all wing players. It's a, it's always this league. It hasn't always been a wing-oriented league, but the, in, the, in today's game, with it being so up tempo and uh, uh, three and D, you got to be able to make threes, and defend the three. That's basically how you win in today's game, and everybody plays the same way. You, you need one of those. You need that type of wing player alongside with Dame. You don't need C.J. McCollum, who is a combo guard, really good offensively, and he's, he, he can give you 30 any given night, but you just can't win big in this league you get to the playoffs, you'll be fun to watch. But at some point you get tired of just being fun to watch and making the playoffs. And I, I I've stayed true to this, but like I said, you look at the players that's been orchestrating championship teams, or that's been like the main catalyst, Grant LeBron Curry's the one exception. Um, but that's because Curry's a generational talent. <laughs> it's the best shooter to ever touch of basketball but you look at carrot you look at LeBron Durant Kawhi those are the guys that's been winning championships
0: those are all facts and the biggest one that you said is the issue I think the main issue is their backcourt I don't think Lillard and McCollum are compatible because they're too relatable they play the same way the difference is Lillard's a PG and McCollum's a shooting guard they're both guards that came from small schools made their names in the nba by being volume but effective scores and while i think McCollum probably isn't the most ideal fit for portland because of that because he needs the ball to be effective he's not a spot up knockdown shooter that can space the floor and catch and shoot situations like a clay thompson he would fit great in philly and tobias harris would probably fit better in portland because in philly they'd need him to kind of be that Perimeter score to create his own shot off the bounce because Ben Simmons lacks that. They're currently right now treating Ben Simmons and Philly like he's Lonzo ball, minus spotting up, but cutting and moving without the basketball, because they know with the ball in his hands, he's not gonna be as dynamic of a threat as he is offensively because of it's lack of a jump shot. And so, and then the other reason for Portland is they're great scores at their guard spot, but they undervalue the impact use of Nurkic could have in the front court because they're not willing playmakers um I think Lillard last year had a career high in assists but as we saw we got deeper in the playoffs and you kind of got to stick to who you are in your cues because everybody kind of is on your highs and your lows so you go to what you can do in a um, high-stakes situation Lillard's not looking to try to play make for anybody but himself and That's a blessing and a curse. The blessing is it's got him to where he is in his career. But the curse is it's limited him from getting there. And so I know a lot of guys like to blame Terry Stotts. I'm not a huge fan of Terry Stotts as a coach. But that team that they created, that post Lamarcus Aldridge team. I love to say that was the post Lamarcus Aldridge team when they kind of changed the guard from Lamarcus to Lillard, allowed them to stay relevant in Portland, but hasn't really been able to create a Western Conference contender. And that ultimately is unfortunate because while they weren't dealt the greatest hand when you have the likes of Golden State having KD and then LeBron getting AD, well, the Lakers getting LeBron and AD, it's tough to kind of find a way to beat those legends in their own rights. But you have to be able to at least consistently get out of the first round. And like we've stated, with the exception of that one season in 2018 or 19, they don't get out of the first round. So that in itself is unfortunate.
1: Yeah, um, you you hit it, you hit the hammer on the head. I think, um, I, and like I said, Charles Barkley and so many other people. I, when I when I talk about like Western Conference contenders, uh, I, I often I I'm reluctant to bring up Portland because they struggled to get out the first round, and I know defensively over the last couple of years that's been their that's been their that's been that's been their Achilles heel. That's been the chink in their armor defensively. And I look at, I I look at so many people tell me that Portland's going to do it. Portland is a sleeper. And it's a reason why they continue to be a sleeper because they never make it as far as people predict them to make it. So, I I mean, I'm kind of over the Portland stage and and as talented and as great as Dane is. And he probably won't because he's just not cut the same – like, he's cut from a different cloth than other guys around the league. He probably won't leave. Um, But at some point, you're like, Portland's there, but they're not serious. They're not going to – they're not, cont- like, seriously competing for a championship.
0: I agree. I think it's going to eventually take literally leaving. He says he won't leave now, but that's what they kind of all say until – the conversation comes up again and it's happened to Durant it's happened to AD it's happened to LeBron if you're a great player which Lillard is he's becoming a great player right before our eyes, and he's done so the last three seasons individuals are going to say you need a championship to be in immortality and I think once he gets that as he's in his prime because he's still in his prime right now I think he'll eventually make the potential move and if I'm Portland you're going to be able to get a lot of compensation for Damian Willard. So it would be a best deal for both sides. Willard gets to contend for a championship, and Portland gets to probably start a rebuild in a way better way than a lot of teams, like an Orlando who got rid of Vucevic and Aaron Gordon, but Vucevic and Aaron Gordon talent-wise compared to Damian Willard, it's like comparing an apple to a vegetable. Like It's just different. And so that's going to be interesting in itself to see if both sides decide to part ways amicably. So next topic, the one that we've been hearing for the past few weeks, the Deshaun Washington situation, Uh, he's been charged with potentially assaulting masseuses that he accumulated over the past three years. And there was something recently that I spotted going in depth about how his lawyer brought up the situation saying, well, he's got 18 masseuses that he's come in contact with that say he's an upstanding guy. He wasn't trying to get at him sideways. Now there's been reports coming out recently that those 18 masseuses that were on his side, like saying he was a good dude, a lot of those guys weren't registered to be licensed masseuses. And so same thing with Tony Busby, the guy that's going against Watson that started the whole situation. He's got some masseuses that are saying they were assaulted by Watson, but they weren't licensed masseuses either. So those guys that are in the court of law trying to, you know, uh, basically charge Watson could potentially charge themselves for not being legally forthright in their own right and so when it comes to watson situation i don't think he's going to go to prison i think eventually all these things will be settled out of court but the nfl has been silent for a reason so they're looking at this situation very clearly and i think we're at a point of no return for watson playing this season and the potential is we expect him maybe to be suspended for a year but who knows the longer it goes the nfl could maybe up it to two. And so if you're the NFL personally, um, they're going through a a, a brand change ever since the Colin Kaepernick situation happened. They want to look not as very conservative due to their audience. They want to look as pro um, everyone in terms of giving the woman the outlet to be successful and for a multitude of fans to feel appreciated and uh, revered not just for being fans of their product, but just being human beings outside of those lines. What do you expect the NFL to do that with all of those things being what they are when it comes to handling this Deshaun Watson situation once it's officially settled in the course of law?
1: Well, uh, this Deshaun Watson story, it's been a tough one. It's been a tough one because with Deshaun Watson, everything from dating back even to like his high school days, Um, with Clemson and his years up to now being in the NFL we've seen nothing but good stuff from Deshaun Watson uh upstanding law-abiding citizen um he's obviously like he's been like one of the faces of the NFL where you you know he's a good guy that's and that's what you hear from everybody that comes in that come that came in contact with Deshaun Watson before the situation. Uh, I found this as a really peculiar situation. Um, and, and and the time it was I found I found it a bit peculiar as well with him wanting a trade, him demanding it out of Houston, and then now all of this comes out. But as far as the NS the NFL and, and once again, Deshaun Watson is he's innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. Um, so the NFL, I think they're going to, like you said, they've been, they, they've been looking at this situation. They haven't said much, but I'm sure they're paying close attention to this situation, um, with Deshaun Watson and they're going to let the justice system, the legal system play itself out, however it goes down. And as you said, I I think I've heard some room I had I heard some some some, some stories around or some news around they're gonna try to charge him Tony Busby Tony Busby is gonna try to charge him for like sex trafficking um and um and don't let me get I'm not a lawyer but I've I've heard some lawyers talk about this situation um Amy Dash she's been pretty good on, on on spot with the situation she talked about how sex trafficking is not like when people think of sex trafficking, you think of going from state to state or country, you know, sex trafficking could be within one place. Uh, so they're trying to charge him on that, but ultimately, I, I don't think he's going to go to prison, prison necessarily. I think this is going to be all settled out um, within the courts. And with the NFL, I have been very skeptical on how they handle different situations because throughout the past couple years or throughout the past several years I have to say it's been wildly inconsistent it's been wildly inconsistent I can date back remember uh, with the Ezekiel Elliott situation where there really wasn't any substantial evidence but he got suspended for six games (laughs) and there wasn't and that there wasn't any substantial real information in that and i if i can if i can remember correctly that case that happened back when he was in ohio state so he wasn't even an nfl employee when this when that case when allegedly that case happened um he wasn't an employee of the nfl or the cowboys so and he still got suspended for six games so with this is the Sean watson story if it's if it's as bad as it looks i could see him getting suspended for a full year and he would probably need to go through a process of reinstatement
0: i agree and i want to touch base on what you said obviously the american legal system loves to uh perpetuate the narrative innocent until proven guilty but what we've seen in our legal system you know well our lives when it comes to the legal system. It's more so than the unknown until proven factual. That's how I like to put it. Case in point, Aaron Donald, when he had his situation where an individual said he assaulted him, it was the unknown. So we all assumed either he might have did it or he might have not. And then video proved that it was not true. The facts came to light. And so for Watson, in my opinion, the first one, I was like, okay, this is odd. Didn't add it up, add it up. And for me, the turning point was the Sports Illustrated article where Sports Illustrated went out of their way to interview a masseuse that was from the Houston area. And they expressed in their article, they had sources, talked to individuals, the person's family, the masseuse's assistant to clarify that the experience they felt was valid enough to put in the print and perpetuate as being a legit encounter that she had with Deshaun Watson. She expressed Watson didn't do anything like sexual, like he didn't like assault her, but he was in essence being a creep. And to me personally, that did for me was like the nail in the coffin to kind of be like, okay, there's a pretty high chance that he may have done it. And going back to your perspective on the Ezekiel Elliott situation, that's exactly what I'm using to judge Watson's potential suspension down the line. His situation happened in college with limited evidence. Yes, they did talk to his ex-girlfriend at the time, and he got six games. So this is a situation where Watson has kind of flip-flopped throughout. He went from, I didn't do anything sexually to them, to, oh, I did have sex with some of them, and now both lawyers have people that are masseuses that aren't licensed. So it's a messy situation, and I'm taking into account where from that Ezekiel Elliott situation to now... The NFL has been through the Colin Kaepernick situation. They've expressed wholeheartedly against racism and women having the opportunity to be able to utilize certain resources and positions within the league to be a part of the NFL family. They're probably not going to take kindly a quarterback misusing or mistreating masseuses that were women. So they're going to come hard for their protection of their brand and probably give them a year, which in the grand scheme of things probably won't hurt Watson and probably won't deter the teams that want him via trade because they're probably gonna look at it as okay, I don't know how old Watson is now. He may be 26, 27. They're and gonna do 25, 25. So if he's out a year, 26, quarterbacks prime in this day and age with the rules that have been like manipulated to protect him, Watson's got 10 good years ahead of him. So I could see it a team like a Chicago. Bears after this season when they struggle again because they don't have a quarterback mortgage their whole draft to get Watson because they feel like all right we just played a year where no one had a chance to get him and we sucked but now he's back in the loop to play again we'll get him on the team we'll exchange everything and I think by then after all of the media hoopla and pressure that the Houston Texans will face they'll probably be able to mortgage Watson at a deal that they will take. Because I think before this leaked out, they didn't want to trade him. And I think a lot of it had to do with uh, pride. I think a lot of it may have to do with a little bit of racism because Cal McNair's father, uh, I forgot what his father's name is, but last name is McNair, made the controversial um, statement about can't let the prisons run the asylum. You know, when Colin Kaepernick was doing his thing and had the league in a hoopla. So... My assumption is the apple does not fall far from the tree. I think that had a lot to do with it as well. And then also contract, like, <laughs> like he signed an extension. So there they can arguably be like, you know what? We're not gonna get rid of you because you don't have a leverage. Like, it's not like we franchise tag you and we could, and you're like, all right, I'm not gonna play for you guys. And it's like, damn, we franchise tagged them, so we can keep franchise tagging them and he but he'll keep making money off of us there's no long-term agreement where we can force him to play with us he could pull a levy on bell if he's franchise tagged and then that means we eventually have to transition tag him and basically get him for nothing but you're still under us so we want to at least get you to play for us to showcase to you we run this and then also you're under the contract so we don't have to abide to your desires and we've seen this before in the nba when Kobe Bryant wanted to get traded at one point when he was with the Lakers and the Lakers were like, no, we're not trading you. Um, I think this happened as well. Football wise. I'm not, I can't remember off the top of my head, but we've seen it before. And it's worked out. It worked out in Kobe's favor. He won two more championships, but um, I always will say this. And my dad and multiple people who are in the NFL have expressed contrary my belief. I said three years ago, it wasn't, when it wasn't even popular Deshaun Watson needs to leave Houston because they're not protecting him. The O-line was trash. And Bill O'Brien was limiting his ability to do anything within the team. The defense was kind of hot and cold. And right when it was time for him to sign that extension, and I saw he was considering it, this was the day before they played the Chiefs in the divisional playoffs, I was like, that's that's stupid. Like, leave. He signs the extension. I'm like, he's making a big mistake. And this is before I predicted the team to lose DeAndre Hopkins and before I saw Watson potentially being what he potentially might be in the court of law. I was like, you can't stay there because Houston's not building anything. And Houston has a track record that Andre Johnson expressed, you know, when he came out and defeated a Deshaun Watson's decision to leave. Houston, since they came into the league as an expansion franchise, they're not trying to do anything productive when it comes to winning football games. They're just not built that way. And they got Derek Carr with their first pick, they basically wasted his career because he never had an O-line when he was there. Matt Schaub did okay because they finally built a competent team, but now they got a legit franchise quarterback guy like they had a Carr and Watson. And Watson, his greatness is allowing his team to be productive, but he's running for his life because he also, like Carr did, is you know in the expansion team does not have an offensive line. So this team has shown a track record of not being able to build a complete team. Why stay there after your rookie contracts up? And I know in the NFL and in the NBA. It's it's expected that once you finish your rookie contract, you sign for another long extension deal with the team that drafted you. But all money ain't good money. And all situations don't seem like they're on the up and up just because they drafted you. You can be a good player and your team's still trash. And even though Houston went to the playoffs twice, I I never saw anything that felt like they were progressing. His two playoff appearances. They lost to the Colts because it literally felt like the Colts knew everything Houston was doing, which they did. They're divisional rivals. And if Buffalo doesn't let go of the wheel when they were up 17-0 when they played again, they lose in the wild card yet again. So they're progressing to nowhere, and you're the best player on the team, and they're not even just trying to make an effort to protect you. Why stay? I think ultimately that was probably his biggest downfall NFL-wise, staying with that team when he had an opportunity – to demand out when he would have had more leverage with a franchise tag on him. You make a
1: valid point about Deshaun Watson and him sign prior to him signing that contract and how you, you look at the structure of Houston, it's not great. It's not great at all. Um, and, I, and And you talked about Houston before the legal stuff happened, right? You talked about Houston and there was some pride there and yes pride that's that was that that was all on full display they did not want to trade him they they, they let their pride get in the way and it the time was really twi- like ticking before the legal system happened right i just want to clear that up before the legal stuff happened the time was really ticking on Houston happening to make the decision about a disgruntled Deshaun Watson because the the draft was coming up And teams like Miami, teams like Chicago, teams like Seattle and so forth, or or, well, not Seattle, but teams like Chicago, uh, Miami, the Jets, the 49ers, they were they were interested in Deshaun Watson, obviously Denver. um, and they had to know what was gonna happen before the draft come up because you know, draft picks and so forth was gonna be included into the deal. But you talk about this Houston, this Houston franchise. I, 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 the ownership is not great, and I'm just trying to figure out, I have not been able to wrap my arms around the Jack Easterby story. When I first found out about Jack Easterby, I couldn't believe it, and I went on my podcast and I just, I ranted because I had never seen such a, a, a such a NFL resume You turn into basically, and if you guys don't know, Jack used to be is like a team. He's a player development type of staff, right? Like he's basically like a team pastor. He's a team pastor and he developed guys as far as their personality off the field. He's a team pastor. And I'm trying to figure out how a team pastor goes from team pastor to football executive, making football moves. I I just don't understand it. And I would as a player, I would feel I would be disgruntled too. And I would want out as well because you guys are not serious about winning games. You have like imagine if imagine if your football team had Joel Alstein making football executive decisions. Like that's that's insane. And Joel Osteen, no disrespect. I mean, passing off. I don't want Joel Osteen running my football team. I don't. And that's what the Texans have in Jack Easterby. So I never quite grasped that situation. And I thought it was weird that he became football, uh, football, you know, in charge of executive moves. Um, And Andre Johnson, he talked about it. The greatest Texan ever. When Andre Johnson speaks, you listen because he rarely speaks. Um, And he was... He, he was very adamant about Deshaun Watson getting out of Houston. And you look at Deshaun Watson in the season that he just had last year, he had an MVP caliber season, but nobody brung up Deshaun Watson's name in the MVP, in the MVP conversation because he played on a 4-12 and football team, which was not his fault. But it just goes to show you the greatness of Deshaun Watson, yes. It, it does. You can't overshadow it, but the four and twelve record and the in how horrible the team was was just just embarrassing. And then Bill O'Brien, four games into the regular season, he got fired, rightfully so. Um, and I look at a guy. I, I just think there's been a missed, a misappropriation of management and titles within this organization and. You look at all of the, I had the names, I mentioned this in one of my episodes, but I had the list of names and the people that have stepped down from their positions in with the Houston Texans. And I don't find that coincidental that just a bunch of these long time employees from the Houston Texans are just getting up and leaving their their good paying jobs. Why is that? There's, there's a structural problem within the Houston Texans organization that it, it, it can't be fixed. Um, it has to start up top. And there's a, there was a sense of pride with the Texans organization. And I think the best the, that the best thing for them is to trade Deshaun Watson. I felt they should have been trading him because you look at the Texans, they have no first round or second round picks um, for the next two to three. For next year for this year and next year's draft. Um, their salary cap strapped now a lot of that has to do, some of that is due to Deshaun Watson, but their salary cap strapped. And as we all know, this is a hard cap league. So (laughs) you you can only do so much. And the, the salary cap is only but so flexible, so much flexible, flexibility. So you're strapped. You're 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 strapped as a team and they're going to stink once again with or without Deshaun Watson, as great as he is. He's a top five quarterback, but they're going to stink. And they're going to continue to stink um, because of the structural issues that they have.
0: Everything you said is spot on. And there's two things I want to touch base on before we pivot. Um, And I would love to hear your responses to these two perspectives I have. Houston's management has been in that f- since the Texans have been accepted into the league as an expansion team. And so it's not out of the box or out of the blue for these narratives that a lot of fans have perpetuated online. who are saying, Hmm, I think everything leaked out about Deshaun's legal issues because Houston was trying to make him pay for demanding a trade. And they wanted to kind of salt him up a bit before they expedited him somewhere else. And while I do say, in my opinion, that's a great point. And in my opinion, I don't even think that's, Cap. I think they did do that. But I also think that Deshaun could also have done some very foul stuff that they covered up for because he was their guy and he was the franchise. And once he didn't want to be a part of their franchise, they kind of left him out to dry and let the chips fall where they may because they probably think, you know what? Because I'm thinking it too. You know what? He's gonna he's gonna go through the legal stuff and eventually he's gonna settle. And the NFL will suspend him for a year but somebody is still going to pay top billing to trade for him because that year is going to come and go. And like you said, he's 25. He'll be 26. He'll still be in the prime of his years. We'll still get top dollar and top value for Dijon no matter what he went through legally because the NFL, unless you're Kaepernick, they don't really care what you do legally when it comes to criminal actions. As long as you're able to play at a high-octane level, you'll be able to get a gig, which is why Greg Hardy, played one more year after his situation he fell out of the league because he wasn't as talented as he was when he was with the Panthers another thing I want to touch base on too I saw it on I Am Athlete it's a podcast that Brandon Marshall Chad Johnson the NFL players have on YouTube that they show and Chad was kind of telling Brandon who was like why don't the players come up and fight for their contractual rights if they don't want to be on a team they could leave and Chad's like dude the players don't run anything It's important that NFL players, whenever the CBA comes up, because it just came up this past year and they basically did nothing. Franchise tax still exists. You know what I'm saying? They don't have the power to demand anything like health insurance. NFL players still don't have that. And so for these players to demand ways out, like NBA personnel does, they're going to have to put that within the CBA, not, outrightly saying let me demand a trade but if you remove franchise tax then it allows a player to play their contract and then when it's up they're gone like they don't have to be at the mercy of a franchise who feels like eh, we still need him but we don't want to pay him his top billing like annually guarantee wise so we'll give him the top earnings of a player at his position which means now if you demand a trade and you're like let's say Lamar Jackson is got a new extension two years into his new extension. He's like, I want out. They will trade him because they know "Hmm, his, his contract no longer has the option for us to franchise tag him. Once that's up, he's gone. So if he's telling us two years in advance, I want out and we can't tag him. We have to trade him because once he finishes his contract, he's gone. That's the leverage NBA players have. They don't have a tag. So if a James Harden says, I want out, yeah, you're, you're guaranteed for him for two more years, but it's going to be a very disgruntled two more years. And eventually he's going to be out for nothing. So that's what NFL players probably need to fight for moving forward because I saw the likes of a Russell Wilson demand basically force, try to force his way. Like, look, if y'all not gonna let me do anything, I want out. But we could kind of tell Seattle control that situation from start to finish. And he kind of wasn't going to go anywhere because he signed a new deal and they could tag him. So it's like, we're not going to get rid of you. So you're stuck here. And so that's the type of leverage NFL players probably need to have, get rid of a, get rid of the franchise tag. Um, Push for more fully guaranteed contracts, get some health insurance. My God, you're playing the most dangerous sport in all of the, all of the USA and none of you guys have health insurance. Pursue those things instead of, we have these situations, we as talking heads talk about it, and the players join in and complain, and I'm like, you guys have more leverage to initiate change within your own job than we do because you guys play for the NFL. When it's CBA time, stop going for the dollar because all these guys look for how much money I can get due to what's, what's the cap's going to look like. I can get that much money, I'm going to go for the money. Think long-term, not just for yourself, but for the generations of future football players down the line.
1: So yes, um let me I'm going to touch on both of those topics. Let me touch on the first one. You bung up um how fans and you know, you've seen certain fans and people talk about how hey, the the this was this all of this legal information and stuff um that uh that's been leaked and that's been out into the public was leaked by the Houston Texans. I don't I don't think that's necessarily I don't think that's, I don't think that's wrong. I think that is, I think that's plausible. I think that is a plausible case. I think that's a plausible point um, that was made that I've seen made over the last couple, uh, over the last, over the last couple weeks, ever since this incident started with Deshaun Watson, I think it's very much plausible. Uh, It is just, if, if it did happen that way, if it transpired that way, that's bad um, on on both sides because hey, Deshaun I'm, and I, like I said, Deshaun Watson is proven innocent till guilty. But if it turns out that these allegations are true, are true, uh, that's that's not a good look, obviously on Deshaun Watson. But then for the Houston Texans to first cover it up because that's their guy. And I get it. Franchise guy. He is the Houston Texans. I mean, essentially at this point with no J.J. Watt and no DeAndre Hopkins, he's the Houston Texans. Um, But you can't like in, in, in the society that we live in today, covering this type of stuff up, (laughs) that's not, it's not the best thing. (laughs) It's not the best choice. So yes, I do think it's plausible. And I, I do, think that it happened that way Um, so it's not a good look on neither side now to the other you know point that you brought up and i am a familiar listener of the i am athlete podcast with brandy marshall and chad ochocinco and so forth uh that particular episode yes the nfl players need to they need to push harder and and harder on the CBA and their leveraging. Uh, as you mentioned, they, they the CBA just passed. They had the recent one where, and now we have the 17-game regular season. That was one of the things that, that was implemented um, and agreed upon with this past CBA, the 17-game regular season. They need to push harder for more guarantee. I, I, and I always hear former or current NFL players talk about it, more so former, where they're like, you know, we just can't get guaranteed dollars. And I'm like, I mean, maybe, maybe you can't just get full out guaranteed dollars, but you got to push harder for better contracts. And yes, the franchise tag. Now there's, there's been certain instances where the franchise tag has worked out. I mean, I'm not gonna lie to you. Now, sometimes, sometimes that's been for quarterbacks, but the franchise tag has worked out for some guys like Kirk Cousins. He got franchise tagged twice by the Washington Football, Washington Redskins, but now the Washington football team. Um, and it worked out. The last, Over the last six years, guess who's made the most money in the, in the NFL out of any player? Kirk Cousins. Dak Prescott, latest example, where he got franchise tagged once. Uh, he had a devastating season in the injury. He comes back, and he has arguably – if you look at the contract details, arguably the best deal in NFL history. So, I mean, there's been certain examples where a franchise tag has completely worked out, and it's a fortune. But in all, I have been such a big proponent. Like, I look at a guy like Andrew Luck. Early on in his career, he got drafted to a 1-15 Indianapolis coach team. And the following year, his rookie year, he turned them into an 11-5 football team. And they were making the playoffs consistently. And he had absolutely nothing around him. Um, his first two, three years in NFL, I don't even think he had 100. He didn't have a 100-yard rusher. <laughs> uh, like, think about that. Not a 1,000-yard rusher. He didn't have a 100-yard rusher. He didn't have a running back that gained 100 yards in a game his first two, three years. He got sacked plenty of times and that ultimately led to his early retirement but what what could have what could have happened if Andrew Luck was so fed up and there was no franchise tag and he was able to leave Indianapolis Andrew Luck would still be playing part right now and it's just so funny and so ironic because you look at Indianapolis now Indianapolis has one of the best well put together rosters where if they added Andrew Luck they would be a Super Bowl team. They would be literally a Super Bowl team. But it goes to show you bad management and bad structural, um, bad structural management within some of these organizations. They got together now with Steve Ball, Steve, uh, Steve uh, Baller. But I look at the NBA situations, and we've seen it pl- countless of times nowadays, where a guy's on his contract year. And he he requests a trade, and the team the team is in a lose lose situation because either you trade him and you get whatever you can for him, or he ends up leaving you that off season. If you like, if the, if nothing doesn't happen significantly um in a positive direction, he ends up leaving you. So that's the type of situations that the NFL players must try to. Try their best to get as close as possible. I heard this point brought up on the I Am Athlete podcast where you look at who's in the NBA, who like who's affiliated with the Players Association. It's Chris Paul. It's LeBron James. Chris Paul is the president of the Players Association, I think. And LeBron James, obviously, I'm sure he has a big say. That matters. That matters that you're your faces of the league and that your big dogs are there and the the NFL they got to find a way to get some of their faces of the league into some of these meetings the the Patrick Mahomes uh, and I'm not saying it got to be your absolute best players but get some notable faces in there where you're trying to push um to make a change and that's that's ultimately what it has to come down to with trying to get a better CBA deal
0: for sure, and you did make a nice point with the franchise tags. You were like, well, there have been NFL players that have benefited from the tags, but the main component that you that you talked about by listing those individuals that did, they're all quarterbacks. And that's kind of the issue. Like, some teams we get, Kansas City Chiefs for sure, Patrick Mahomes should be the highest-paid player on that team because he, he basically makes the Chiefs a Super Bowl title contender. But, like, if I'm on a team like Detroit, At a point, had Matthew Stafford making more money than Calvin Johnson when he was playing, that shouldn't really be the case, you know, and I think that's the biggest issue disparities with contracts because all the money's funneled into the quarterback, you have some skill position players that get paid their market value, but market value differentiates depending on the team like just because the quarterbacks the most important position in the NFL doesn't mean the quarterback is the most important player on a team when it comes to impact talent things of that nature and that can all be reevaluated and positioned into a better area like you said in the CBA so with Justin Fields NFL draft prospect another quarterback coming out of Ohio State not the aforementioned quarterback factory like the likes of other schools in recent memory he's been getting evaluated in a strange way early on in the draft process he was regarded as the fifth best quarterback in the draft and he was kind of sliding on people's draft boards but since his second pro day he's back up to that number three spot we've heard the narrative of Mac Jones being the Niners guy for a while and now he's no longer the Niners guy and so with Fields how have you been looking at his draft evaluation so far and the oddity of it all And do you believe in the Mac Jones hype in terms of the Niners are for sure going to pick him? And what is it ultimately going to come down to when it comes to fields landing, where he lands come the NFL draft?
1: Okay. So (laughs) it's funny that we talk about this because I've been talking about this situation, this particular topic, so much on my, on my, on like some of my recent episodes. Um, Justin Fields so to, so and to, and to put perspective to this coming out of coming coming out of high school Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence they have always been compared and Trevor Lawrence obviously has been looked at as the best quarterback prospect since Andrew Luck right and after that at number 2 there's always been Justin Fields and I've heard many people say many scouts Many college football analysts, they say, "Hey, if Trevor, if if if, if Justin Fields, if Trevor Lawrence wasn't in his draft, Justin Fields would be ultimately the number one pick." That's what I've heard all these years, and now that we have, we have, we have finally, we're finally here at the draft prospect process uh, of the of the seat, of the you know of the situation with drafting guys and evaluating guys and breaking down and crunching tape. Suddenly, Justin Fields has failed, and many people think it's Zach Wilson, Matt Jones, Trey Lance, Justin Fields. And I just didn't understand. Now, some of it I think is because, hey, Fields, let's be honest, he's a black quarterback. He's a a black quarterback and he has a bad, and he, in, in Ohio, and Ohio State, they get a bad rep for their quarterbacks, especially recently. Um, Dwayne Haskins did not serve that situation any better, um, or that particular narrative any better, with his actions and his play with the Washington Football Team over the last couple years, right? So we have we have a guy in Desha- in, in Justin Fields where he has been he's been mis evaluated like the biggest the biggest knocks that i've heard about justin fields is you know what justin fields he's not a, he's not a guy that can go through his progressions after the first read after the first read he is just not the same quarterback well that is completely not true at all that's completely not true at all and i found this tweet from pff they they did a grade on throws past the first read since 2019, right? 60 attempts minimum. Guess who's number one in throws past the first read? Justin Fields. They gave him a grade of 90.6. So that's so when when people, so when different draft analysts and experts throw out these narratives and we don't even know that it's true. Um, and when people don't really go and watch film and break down film to see if these narratives are true. We just automatically run with them. and that's what's happened. So it's a, so it's particular misevaluations at, like that where, where it's just been misevaluated time after time after time. Once again, Dan Orlowski, uh, ESPN analyst, NFL analyst where he's a former quarterback and he's talked about hey um, Justin Fields his work ethics are questionable turns out that narrative that narrative was just false um, and it, that led to him happening to touch back and reach in with reach with other Ohio State coaches it turned out not to be true Justin Fields has a strong work ethic so all of these situations with Misevaluation of Justin Fields. Honestly, some of it is because he's a black quarterback. Some of it is because he's played with he's played under Ryan day and Ohio State it all of these, all of these various things feed into the misvaluation of Justin Fields and as you said, now he's back. He's back on people's radar as the third quarterback behind, that's going to be taken behind Lawrence, Zach Wilson, and then Fields at at three. Now the Mac Jones hype? No, I am not a believer in the Mac Jones hype. I I I I just I just don't know what to say about Mac Jones. He's he had a great he played his role great, terrifically at Alabama. But you look at the throws that he made, get this. On three hundred, he had on, on all of his dropbacks, 347 times he dropped back, he had a clean pocket. That's not the NFL. He's not gonna have all he's not gonna have a clean pocket all the time in the NFL, right? And he, he had a high completion percentage, but guys were wanting, were running wide open. You can thank you can be you can thank Steve Sarkeesian. With his system, guys were running wide open. He also played with Devontae Smith, Heisman Trophy winner at the receiver position. That shows you how great he was. Mac Jones, when and he reminds me of a bigger Kirk Cousins. That's my comp for him. He's a bigger Kirk Cousins, and for a guy that has a defined seat ceiling, because you look at all these prospects, these the top five quarterback prospects, he has the lowest ceiling. And that's literally what the 49ers are dealing with with Jimmy Garoppolo. Garoppolo is a guy who has a low defined ceiling and he's also injury prone. But he has a low defined ceiling and he can't move the pocket. That's the same thing Matt Jones is. He has a low defined ceiling. And the things that Justin Fields is able to do with his arm and with his athleticism Matt Jones can only dream about. He can only dream about the things that Justin Fields is able to do. So with so with this particular situation with Matt Jones and like I feel like sometimes within the NFL draft, we we over evaluate, we over-evaluate quarterbacks and we overestimate quarterbacks. Because a guy like Matt Jones, realistically, He's a third round guy. He's like a third or second round quarterback, realistically. But we overvaluate and some teams overcompensate the quarterback position. We talked about this on the, on the previous segment where, you know, quarterbacks are sometimes misvalued and overpaid because they play the quarterback position. No, you should be drafted accordingly. You should be drafted accordingly. The, like, like get this cow pits is probably the best pass catching prospect in the draft since julio jones in my in my memory as a prospect he's probably the best pass catcher since julio jones but he's not going to be taken before a mac jones or or oh sorry if, if the 49ers take mac jones at three That means Mac Jones, you're telling me Mac Jones is a better player than Kyle Pitts? No, it's because of the position that Mac Jones plays. So I don't think, I never bought into hype. I don't think they're going to draft, actually draft Mac Jones. But it's Kirk Cousins. And the 49ers, they didn't give up three first round picks to draft and move up to draft a guy that has a defined ceiling. At least I don't hope they did that.
0: Great, great, great points. I mean, the Kirk Cousins comp—I never, I haven't even thought of that. Um, I have heard a lot of scouts try to compare him to Matt Ryan. Um, which I don't think is that bad either. But Kirk Cousins probably makes the most sense in terms of comp. Um, I do feel like they're pigeon. I do feel like a few things. Mac Jones benefited from. Let's be honest, the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic happened, and the SEC was probably the only conference where they were playing ten plus games. So you have an expanded tape of Mac Jones being flawless. His biggest comp was what Georgia for a half. But other than that, he ran a rough shot through everybody. He had great rapport with his receivers because he had experience and continuity with them the year prior when Tua got injured. And I think for a couple of games, Mac ran the offense and he played particularly well in that setting. So, and then he benefited from an Alabama offensive line that was outstanding. Like you said before, most of his dropbacks he had plenty of time. Now you did touch base on the fact that Fields' race is a big reason why, that he's getting devalued, and now he's getting evaluated where he rightly should be. I will say this about Fields. I was in high on Fields before it was popular not to be high on Fields. It was his sophomore year. He played well, 41 touchdowns, two picks. But my issue wasn't him reading defenses because, let's be honest, which quarterback in college football reads defenses like a professional? They don't. Every offense is spread. Every offense is Look to the side, not every offense, but most offenses are. Look to the sideline. We'll tell you the cue. If the first reads there, hit it, maybe go to the second. But if you a dual threat like Fields, first read, go. But like you said, you see on tape, it's not always that. It's first read, second read, and maybe at times even a third read, and then maybe tuck in and run. He was a reluctant runner, if anything, that I saw on tape. The biggest thing with Fields was I questioned, could he consistently drive the football down the field? And I thought early on last year, and no one's bringing this up, he was pretty good until he hurt his wrist, which <laughs> played a huge part of why he didn't play well against Northwestern. Indiana is probably the only game you could circle and grill him, I guess, for, but Indiana at the time was a top 10 team, had a top five defense, threw a lot of intricate looks and coverages at him that he honestly didn't know what was going on. And that's great defensive, you know, Preparation, but a lot of it was probably should have took the check down, and he wanted to go for the big play because he's playing in a pandemic. He wants to show everybody I can make the downfield throws. I'm that um, multi tool quarterback that everybody's lauding. Trevor Lawrence to be, but back to the race component. I've seen the NFL do this before in three different cases: Trubisky with Deshaun Watson. And that situation was wild because a lot of people don't remember this. I always bring this up to anybody who brings it up. Josh Allen was supposed to come out that year. He didn't. He decided to go back to school. So the NFL basically was like, we got to create this all-American white boy quarterback out of nowhere that's undervalued, that's going to rise up on people's boards. It can't be Josh Allen. Let's make it Mitchell Trubisky, who ironically played in the same conference as Deshaun Watson. And Trubisky, the scheme on him was he couldn't beat out Marquise Williams, who wound up and became a practice squad quarter practice squad receiver at the professional level. Trubisky had one year. It was cool, but nothing in comparison to Watson. And a lot of people grilling Watson because of the interceptions. But my response to that statement was he was all Clemson had offensively. Clemson didn't have ETN at that time. Goldman was cool. Mike Williams, who they tried to over-elevate, like he was the second coming of Julio Jones, he was a a great weapon for him. But Deshaun Watson was Clemson's offense. I give him a pass on Patrick Mahomes because, like Fields, Texas Tech quarterbacks had a horrible stigma when it came to translating to the pros. My thing about Mahomes is it was pretty clear if you watched on tape, like Fields, he's different from Texas Tech quarterbacks. TTU quarterbacks, one read... Yeah. offense is wide open due to Mike Leach and it's one go. cats are wide open we throw it with such volume of course you're gonna pile up 500 yards I saw Mahomes first two throws at the collegiate level off platform straight dimes because he used to be a baseball player so that accurate arm strength is it's in him I'm like yeah he, he he's in my opinion he's Brett Favre with better decision making and everybody loves Brett Favre who I think is kind of overrated in terms of his legacy but they love him so if he's that with better decision-making, he's going to be a pretty good pro. They were my top two quarterbacks at the time, not Trubisky. Look how that turned out. Mahomes is an MVP, and Watson is one of the solid premier quarterbacks in the game. So my issue with scouts are they let, for starters, they let narratives and also the stigma of race perpetuate how they evaluate these quarterbacks. And the problem is you have a lot of ownerships, contrary to what people believe, they listen to what scouts say. Cleveland used to do it all the time. They did it with Baker Mayfield. They listened to what they said about Baker. They took him. And yeah, Baker, in comparison to his other Cleveland Brown quarterback contemporaries, has panned out pretty well. But that's largely because the team that they built around him is, is better than the Cleveland Brown quarterbacks before him. So yes, <laughs> these guys, they they invest and they pay attention to what these scouts say and the worst are Mel Kuyper and Todd McShafer ESPN. They are horrible because they make these mocks and I'm like, what? You know what I'm saying? They, they prop these guys up so high and I have two statements as well. I think Zach Wilson and Mac Jones have reached your ceilings. I like Zach Wilson. So I understand why people rank him ahead of, of, you know, feels because from a passing perspective, he's more consistent and proficient in that area than feels is right now. But Wilson reminds me of a slower version of Kyler Murray. Solid arm, he can make the throws, but he's not going to be a game changing quarterback because there's nothing about him within his game that will wow you. Where it's like, okay, once everything comes together, that innate athleticism is going to take him over the top. No. Fields is incredible as an athlete whose passing is sporadic at times, but you could tell like a lot of passes we saw with Josh Allen. All you got to do is work with the footwork, work with their base. If you get the sound base, that ball is going to come out a lot accurate and precise. We saw with Josh Allen issue with Buffalo, they went in depth how he worked with Jordan Palmer during the off season. And week one, I'm like, yo, he's throwing dots. So I'm like, okay, can this consistently continue? And it did all year. Now, granted, Josh Allen had his moments where he's still Josh Allen, where he'll think he could throw it through a wall. So he'll make some innate, you know, inopportune mistakes. But it's all about the footwork. So if you get a guy with a high ceiling, Aaron, be like, okay, he's not the most accurate passer. Redefine his footwork, redefine his base, redefine his arm motion. Then you'll get probably the best version of him at the pro level, I don't understand why these individuals don't look at it that way, because fans are seeing it. Why aren't they? And I think a lot of it is buying into narratives to appease their fan base and sell it to where if it falls on its face, you can always be like, well, at the time we had to do it because it was a no brainer. But in (laughs) actuality, if you look at the tape, the tape never lost in sports the tape and the game never lies you can create a great story about you know i really want i really want cleveland to beat the kansas city chiefs but when they line up and they play football cleveland was not better than kansas city in the playoffs so the tape never usually lies if everybody's fully healthy they're all on the floor playing how they play usually the best team is going to come out and win that same philosophy should be attributed to evaluating these prospects tape doesn't lie which guy can translate better for me long term at the pro level? It's easily Fields. I don't think Mac Jones and Zach Wilson have a sustainable upward trajectory. Not to say they're going to be bad pros, I think all the quarterbacks they're hyping up the top four are going to be solid pros, but there's no way in heck Fields should be behind Mac Jones, like that shouldn't even be a discussion. Yet it is,
1: yeah. And you mentioned we mentioned in film and watching it, but it's as simple as this. Like I'm saying, it's a so first, it's a copycat league, and there's trends you there's trends throughout the league. And I look at the quarterbacks usually in previous years, um, that you know, a decade ago, all of the quarterbacks look the same six four pocket guys. Nowadays, quarterbacks come in different shapes and sizes. You got Kyler Murray, who's Yay tall, five nine at that. Um, and he's quick. You got guys like Trevor Lawrence and Justin Herbert who stand at 6'6, six, six, big, but they can move just as well as Kyler Murray a little bit, you know. Um, you got guys that six three, six two quarterbacks come in all different shapes and sizes, and when you go on a film and you watch it, the like I think there was some misevaluation of Justin Herbert. Now it's not a race thing, obviously, but there was mis of Herbert because You look at, because some people first, I think some people's like, ah, the the offense, I've seen some inconsistencies with Justin Herbert and Oregon's offense. Well, if anybody knew, Chris Sandoval was a offensive, he's an offensive line guy. So Oregon's offense is not what it used to be with Chip Kelly. It is the opposite. It's the mere opposite. It's a slow pace, grinded out. Run the football, run-heavy offensive line. So, in today's NFL, that is not modern football. That's not modern NFL football. That's not what you see on a on a on a week-to-week basis on Sundays, right? So, people. So, I think certain scouts couldn't see past that. But if you looked at certain plays, like with that Justin Herbert made throughout his his last year at at Oregon, you would be able to tell. You like. No, this guy is different, and I think it was one play versus Auburn, uh, where it was like a third down. It, they were it, they were they were in the red zone or so forth. They were, I think they were like outside the red. They were like in thirty-five, and he broke out of a sack. He scrambled out. He went scrambled out. Broke out of a sack, and off of his black off his back foot off platform throw. He throws a dart, and they score a touchdown. And it's just certain plays like that where you look at you got to be able to tell like, no, this guy is just special, and this guy has that, and you that's what Herbert had, and that's what he showed, and now he's a he's a he's a emerging superstar in today's game, and when I look at Mac Jones, there's no way he should be ahead of of Justin Fields, no way, and and, and get this. For all the Mac Jones fans that may be out there, if Mac Jones gets drafted at number three with the 49ers, he's gonna have a good offensive line, he's gonna have a solid running game, he's gonna have a solid defense when healthy, and he's gonna have Kyle Shanahan, one of the better young offensive minds in football. So if Mac Jones get, does get drafted at three, he's gonna be he's gonna be okay because the supporting cast around him is really good and it's a it's a ready to win supporting cast but once again he's going to have a defined ceiling and he's not the, ultimately you want to win a Super Bowl because usually in the NFL it's a hard cap league so when when you it's it the best chance to win a Super Bowl is when you have a quarterback on his rookie deal right so they're paying so the 49ers, they're paying Trent Williams, they're paying uh they're paying George Kittle, they're gonna have to pay Bosa very soon. They're paying a lot of guys. I think they're gonna have to pay Fred Warner. So they're paying a lot of guys, and whoever they draft, they need this quarterback to be awesome. Because when you draft a quarterback this high, your expectations, your expectation level is he needs to be awesome. Like he needs to be superhero type of good. And if, if 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 Fields is the guy and he turns in to be that, the 49ers Super Bowl window is open. But with Matt Jones, that is not the case. They're gonna be a they're gonna be a pretty good team. They're gonna win a lot of games, and he's gonna look pretty good. But you're gonna you're gonna see my comp, my comparison of Kirk Cousins, where Kirk Cousins yes has great offensive weapons around him but there's a defined ceiling and that ceiling is probably playoff appearance maybe a playoff win but nothing really more than that and then there's going to be some questions about the 49ers and why they can't get over the hump and I'm going to point to if if Mac Jones is drafted I'm going to point to Mac Jones because Mac Jones he's that's the ceiling that's his ceiling you could have had a guy in Justin Fields who was a transfer. He's a, he's a generational type talent where his size, arm, and athleticism with Kyle Shanahan's system and the pieces that they have, receiving core all, as well, I, they could really do some things. They can really do some things and be scary. And, and last point, I always think about divisions, what division you're in. Because you draft a guy like Mac Jones, you're stuck, like I said, you're stuck with a guy like, I I see him as a bigger version of Kirk Cousins. Well, look who's in the NFC West. And by the way, the NFC West is hyper aggressive. All of the teams got better. Matthew Stafford, Kyler Murray, Russell Wilson, and you have Mac Jones. Just saying, just like there's certain teams like the Denver Broncos, Patrick Mahomes, Justin Herbert, you know, Derek Carr, who I think is a bit underrated, but really good. He's not the Raiders' problem. And the Denver Broncos, has, they have Drew Locke. It's just not going to – and I always think about divisions because that's ultimately like if you win your division, automatic playoffs. So I'm just thinking of, hey, the 49ers draft Matt Jones – You got Kyler Murray, Russell Wilson, Matthew Stafford. Arguably, you can make an argument that those three quarterbacks are all top 10. Russell Wilson is a top three quarterback, in my opinion. And then the other two, Kyler Murray and Matthew Stafford, you can make a legit argument that they are top 10 guys, right? So that's what you're competing against if you're the 49ers. So you can't have a guy in Matt Jones that has a defined ceiling and can't move the pocket.
0: Especially when the best defensive player in divisions Aaron Donald Rams can get away with having Stafford whose mobility is underrated because he doesn't have to go against Aaron Donald Aaron Donald's on his team but if Mac Jones has to go against that and we all know a quarterback's true kryptonite really isn't pressure on the edge because that's like a spidey sense they have in the back of their head where they can feel that and step up it's pressure up the middle it's the pressure they can see but you can't step up if somebody's coming up the middle, disrupting you at the point of your own um, pass attempt, you have to step back, which now allows the edges to converge and get you on the ground. So those are all elements that the Niners need to consider. I honestly feel like they're going to pick fields. I think the narrative was just perpetuated by scouts who wanted to propel their their um underrated prospect into top five stratospheres. We see it every time in the draft. It doesn't have to just be at the quarterback position. It could be receiver like Darius Hayward Bay back in the day because of his 40. Um, it could be any Eric Ebron went top 10 one year, like we've seen it before, but like I said before, their job, the the scouts that get you know endorsed by their requisite media companies, their job is to kind of do that, sell it because they're selling the draft, because the draft is their job, that's their biggest job proponent, is sell it to where you want to watch their draft, watch what they do at a high level. We're just scouting and commenting on these guys so you could tune in. The Team Scout's job is to pick the best player available for their team and in their eyes. You don't have to listen to allocated resources that aren't in your war room or invested in your roster to come away with a decision like, oh, I want to do that. You got to go for what's going to fit within your team building and then go from there. You don't want to be that franchise that had the opportunity to pick a slam dunk and passed on it because you bought into the narrative of what everybody else was looking at because of their 40 or their innate athleticism. But on tape, you're like, eh, it's pretty clear. You don't know if they translate to the next level. Absolutely. So with that, I'm going to call it a episode 14 of Independent Intel. Here with Isaiah Kidd, probably one of the better guests I've had on this pod. Great. Had a great time articulating various topics that we talked about today. Before I go, Isaiah, just talk about your experience on this pod and bring up your, uh, you know, your podcast in general, your brand, and then go call it a day.
1: Okay. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. I greatly appreciate it. Um, uh, These topics were great to run through, um, especially the draft. You mentioned the draft. I I think this year's draft is going to be really good. Um, and i've been doing a lot of content some, somewhat around the, around this draft um, and the highly talented prospects so i think this draft's going to break some 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 ratings records actually but i enjoyed this time um thank you for having me on i i would be more than happy to come back on um and and you know do you do what you need me to do or talk about and so forth uh I just enjoyed it, and you guys can check out my podcast once again. I'm the I'm the host of the Isaiah kid podcast. Um, you can find it on Apple, Spotify, uh, iHeart Radio, so forth. Uh, you know, t- tune in with me, so forth. And I'm gonna I'm I bring I bring you on as a guest uh, on the IKP um, very soon. We, we can talk about some NBA playoffs and
0: so forth, but.
1: I greatly appreciate it for letting, you co- for letting me come on your platform and break down some sports.
0: No problem, man. i going to continue the guests rolling in. we would love to bring you back and would love to be on yours. Got a couple of people that want me to be on their platform, so can't wait for it to continue. And with that, we'll see you guys next week. Peace.